Chapter Thirteen, Part One. Annie Besant, by Annie Besant. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Socialism. The rest of 1883 passed in the usual way of hard work. The affirmation bill was rejected, and the agitation for constitutional right grew steadily. The liberal press was won over, and Mr. Bradlaugh was beginning to earn golden opinions on all sides for his courage, his tenacity, and his self-control. A successful international congress at Amsterdam took some of us over to the northern Venice, where a most successful gathering was held. To me personally, the year has a special interest as being the one in which my attention was called, though only partially, to the socialist movement. I had heard Louise Michel lecture in the early spring. A brief controversy in the National Reformer had interested me, but I had not yet concerned myself with the economic basis of socialism. I had realized that the land should be public property, but had not gone into the deeper economic causes of poverty though the question was pressing with ever-increasing force on heart and brain. Of socialist teaching I knew nothing, having studied only the older English economists in my younger days. In 1884 a more definite call to consider these teachings was to come, and I may perhaps open the record of 1884 with the words of greeting spoken by me to our readers in the first number of The Reformer for that year. What tests 1884 may have for our courage— what strains on our endurance, what trials of our loyalty, none can tell. But this we know, that every test of courage successfully met, every strain of endurance steadily borne, every trial of loyalty nobly surmounted, leaves courage braver, endurance stronger, loyalty truer than each was before. And therefore, for our own and for the world's sake, I will not wish you, friends, an 1884 in which there shall be no toil and no battling. But I will wish you, each and all, the hero's heart and the hero's patience, in the struggle for the world's raising, that will endure through the coming year. On February 3rd I came for the first time across a paper called Justice, in which Mr. Bradlaugh was attacked, and which gave an account of a meeting of the Democratic Federation, not yet the Social Democratic, in which a man had, apparently unrebuked, said that all means were justifiable to attain working-class ends. I protested strongly against the advocacy of criminal means, declaring that those who urged the use of such means were the worst foes of social progress. A few weeks later the Echo repeated a speech of Mr. Hindman's in which a bloodier revolution than that of France was prophesied, and the extinction of book-learning seemed coupled with the success of socialism, and this again I commented on. But I had the pleasure a week later of reprinting from Justice a sensible paragraph condemning the advocacy of violence so long as free agitation was allowed. The spring was marked by two events on which I have not time or space to dwell. The resignation by Mr. Bradlaugh of his seat, on the reiteration of the resolution of exclusion, and his triumphant return for the fourth time by an increased majority, a vote of 4,032, a higher poll than that of the general election and the release of Mr. Foote on February 25th from Holloway, whence he was escorted by a procession a quarter of a mile in length. On the 12th of March he and his fellow prisoners received a magnificent reception and were presented with valuable testimonials at the Hall of Science. Taking up again the thread of socialism, the great debate in St. James Hall, London, between Mr. Bradlow and Mr. Hindman on April 17th, roused me to a serious study of the questions raised. Socialism has in England 
no more devoted, no more self-sacrificing advocate than Henry Hindeman, a man of wide and deep reading, wielding most ably a singularly fascinating pen, with talents that would have made him wealthy in any career he adopted, he has sacrificed himself without a murmur to the people's cause. He has borne obloquy from without, suspicion and unkindness from those he served, and surrounded by temptations to betray the people, he has never swerved from his integrity. He has said rash things, has been stirred to passionate outbursts and reckless phrases. But love to the people and sympathy with suffering lay at the root of his wildest words, and they count but little as against his faithful service. Personally, my debt to him is of a mixed character. He kept me from socialism for some time by his bitter and very unjust antagonism to Mr. Bradlow, but it was the debate at St. James Hall that, while I angrily resented his injustice, made me feel that there was something more in practical socialism than I had imagined, especially when I read it over afterwards, away from the magic of Mr. Bradlow's commanding eloquence and personal magnetism. It was a sore pity that English socialists, from the outset of their movement, treated Mr. Bradlow so unfairly, so that his friends were set against socialists ere they began to examine their arguments. I must confess that my deep attachment to him led me into injustice to his socialist foes in those early days, and often made me ascribe to them calculated malignity instead of hasty and prejudiced assertion. Added to this, their uncurbed violence in discussion, their constant interruptions during the speeches of opponents, their reckless inaccuracy in matters of fact, were all bars standing in the way of the thoughtful. When I came to know them better, I found that the bulk of their speakers were very young men, overworked and underpaid, who spent their scanty leisure in efforts to learn, to educate themselves, to train themselves, and I learned to pardon faults which grew out of the bitter sense of injustice, and which were due largely to the terrible pressure of our system on characters not yet strong enough. How few are strong enough! to bear grinding injustice without loss of balance and of impartiality. None save those who have worked with them know how much of real nobility, of heroic self-sacrifice, of constant self-denial, of brotherly affection, there is among the social democrats. At this time also I met George Bernard Shaw, one of the most brilliant of socialist writers and most provoking of men, a man with a perfect genius for aggravating the enthusiastically earnest and with a passion for representing himself as a scoundrel. On my first experience of him on the platform at South Place Institute, he described himself as a loafer, and I gave an angry snarl at him in the reformer, for a loafer was my detestation, and behold, I found that he was very poor, because he was a writer with principles and preferred starving his body to starving his conscience, that he gave time and earnest work to the spreading of socialism, spending night after night in workmen's clubs, and that a loafer was only an amiable way of describing himself because he did not carry a hod. Of course I had to apologize for my sharp criticism as doing him a serious injustice, but privately felt somewhat injured at having been entrapped into such a blunder. Meanwhile I was more and more turning aside from politics and devoting myself to the social condition of the people. I find myself in June protesting against Sir John Lubbock's bill which fixed a twelve-hour day as the limit of a young person's toil. A day of twelve hours is brutal, I wrote. If the law fixes twelve hours as a fair day, that law will largely govern custom. I declare that a legal day should be eight hours on five days in the week, and not more than five hours on the sixth. If the labor is of an exhausting character, these hours are too long. On every side now the socialist controversy grew, and I listened, read, and thought much, but said little. 
The inclusion of John Robertson in the staff of the Reformer brought a highly intellectual socialist into closer touch with us, and slowly I found that the case for socialism was intellectually complete and ethically beautiful. The trend of my thought was shown by urging the feeding of board school children, breaking down under the combination of education and starvation, and I asked why should people be pauperized by a rate-supported meal and not pauperized by state-supported police, drainage, road-mending, street-lighting, etc. Socialism in its splendid ideal appealed to my heart, while the economic soundness of its basis convinced my head. All my life was turned towards the progress of the people, the helping of man, and it leaped forward to meet the stronger hope, the lofty ideal of social brotherhood, the rendering possible to all of freer life. So long had I been striving thitherward, and here there opened up a path to the yearned-for goal. How strong were the feelings surging in my heart may be seen in a brief extract from an article published second week of January, 1885. Christian Charity? We know its work. It gives a hundredweight of coal and five pounds of beef once a year to a family whose head could earn a hundred such doles if Christian justice allowed him a fair wage for the work he performs. It plunders the workers of the wealth they make, then flings back at them a thousandth part of their own product as charity. It builds hospitals for the poor whom it has poisoned in filthy courts and alleys, and workhouses for the worn-out creatures from whom it has wrung every energy, every hope, every joy. Miss Cobb summons us to admire Christian civilization, and we see idlers flaunting in the robes woven by the toilers, a glittering tinseled superstructure founded on the tears, the strugglings, the grey, hopeless misery of the poor. The first month of January, 1885, brought on me the first attack for my socialist tendencies, from the pen of Mr. W. P. Ball who wrote to the reformer complaining of my paragraph quoted above, in which I had advocated rate-supported meals for board-school children. A brief controversy thus arose, in which I supported my opinion, waiving the question as to my being at heart a socialist. In truth, I dreaded to make the plunge of publicly allying myself with the advocates of socialism, because of the attitude of bitter hostility they had adopted toward Mr. Bradlaugh. On his strong, tenacious nature, nurtured on self-reliant individualism, the arguments of the younger generation made no impression. He could not change his methods because a new tendency was rising to the surface, and he did not see how different was the socialism of our day to the socialist dreams of the past. Noble ideals of a future not immediately realizable in truth, but to be worked towards and rendered possible in the days to come. Could I take public action which might bring me into collision with the dearest of my friends? which might strain the strong and tender tie so long existing between us. My affection, my gratitude, all warred against the idea of working with those who wronged him so bitterly. But the cry of starving children was ever in my ears. The sobs of women poisoned in lead-works, exhausted in nail-works, driven to prostitution by starvation, made old and haggard by ceaseless work. I saw their misery was the result of an evil system, was inseparable from the private ownership of the instruments of wealth production, that while the worker was himself but an instrument, selling his labor under the law of supply and demand, he must remain helpless in the grip of the employing classes, and that trade combinations could only mean increased warfare, necessary indeed for the time as weapons of defense, but meaning war, not brotherly cooperation of all for the good of all. 
A conflict which was stripped of all covering, a conflict between a personal tie and a call of duty, could not last long, and with a heavy heart I made up my mind to profess socialism openly and work for it with all my energy. Happily, Mr. Bradlaugh was as tolerant as he was strong, and our private friendship remained unbroken. But he never again felt the same confidence in my judgment as he felt before, nor did he any more consult me on his own policy, as he had done ever since we first clasped hands. A series of articles in Our Corner, on the redistribution of political power, on the evolution of society, on modern socialism, made my position clear. Over against those who laud the present state of society, with its unjustly rich and its unjustly poor, with its palaces and its slums, its millionaires and its paupers, be it ours to proclaim that there is a higher ideal in life than that of being first in the race for wealth, most successful in the scramble for gold. Be it ours to declare steadfastly that health, comfort, leisure, culture, plenty for every individual are far more desirable than the breathless struggle for existence, furious trampling down of the weak by the strong, huge fortunes accumulated out of the toil of others, to be handed down to those who had done nothing to earn them. Be it ours to maintain that the greatness of a nation depends not on the number of its great proprietors, on the wealth of its great capitalists, or on the splendor of its great nobles, but on the absence of poverty among its people on the education and refinement of its masses, on the universality of enjoyment in life, enough for each of work, of leisure, of joy, too little for none, too much for none, such is the social ideal. Better to strive after it worthily and fail than to die without striving for it at all. Then I differentiated the methods of the socialist and the radical individualist, pleading for union among those who formed the wings of the army of labor, and urging union of all workers against the idlers. For the weakness of the people has ever been in their divisions, in the readiness of each section to turn its weapons against other sections instead of against the common foe. All privileged classes, when they are attacked, sink their differences and present a serried front to their assailants. The people alone fight with each other, while the battle between themselves and the privileged is raging. I strove, as so many others were striving, to sound in the ears of the thoughtless and the careless the cry of the sufferings of the poor, endeavoring to make articulate their misery. Thus, in a description of Edinburgh slums came the following. I saw in a house, which was made by boarding up part of a passage, which had no window, and in which it was necessary to burn an oil lamp all day, thus adding to the burden of the rent, a family of three, man, wife, and child, whose lot was hardly of their own making. The man was tall and bronze, but he was dying of heart disease. He could not do hard work. He was too clumsy for light work. So he sat there, after two days' fruitless search, patiently nursing his miserable, scrofulous baby in his dim and narrow den. The cases of individual hopeless suffering are heartbreaking. In one room lay a dying child, dying of a low fever brought on by want of food. It hay no feather, sobbed the mother, and for a moment I did not catch the meaning that the father had left to the mother all the burden of a child unallowed by law. In another the corpse of a mother, with the children round her, and hard-featured gentle-hearted women came in to take back to their overcrowded beds the mitherless bairns. In yet another a woman, shrunken and yellow, crouching over a glimmer of fire. I am dying of cancer of the womb, she said, 
and with that pathetic resignation to the inevitable so common among the poor. I sat chatting for a few minutes. "'Come again, dearie,' she said as I rose to go. "'It's gay dull sitting here the day through.' The article in which these, among other descriptions, occurred was closed with the following. Passing out of the slums into the streets of the town, only a few steps separating the horror and the beauty, I felt, with a vividness more intense than ever, the fearful contrasts between the lots of men, and with more pressing urgency the question seemed to ring in my ears, Is there no remedy? Must there always be rich and poor? Some say that it must be so, that the palace and the slum will forever exist as the light and the shadow. Not so do I believe. I believe that the poverty is the result of ignorance and of bad social arrangements, and that therefore it may be eradicated by knowledge and by social change. I admit that for many of these adult dwellers in the slums there is no hope, poor victims of a civilization that hides its brutality beneath a veneer of culture and of grace. For them individually there is, alas, no salvation. But for their children, yes. Healthy surroundings, good food, mental and physical training, plenty of play, and carefully chosen work, these might save the young and prepare them for happy life. But they are being left to grow up as their parents were, and even when a few hours of school are given them, the home half neutralizes what the education effects. The scanty aid given is generally begrudged. The education is to be but elementary. As little as possible is doled out. Yet these children have, each one of them, hopes and fears, possibilities of virtue and of crime, a life to be made or marred. We shower money on generals and on nobles. We keep high-born paupers living on the national charity. We squander wealth with both hands on army and navy, on churches and palaces. But we grudge every halfpenny that increases the education rate and howl down every proposal to build decent houses for the poor. We cover our heartlessness and indifference with fine phrases about sapping the independence of the poor and destroying their self-respect. With loathsome hypocrisy we repair a prince's palace for him and let him live in it rent-free, without one word about the degradation involved in his thus living upon charity, while we refuse to pauperize the toiler by erecting decent buildings in which he may live, not rent-free like the prince, but only paying a rent which shall cover the cost of erection and maintenance, instead of one which gives a yearly profit to the speculator. And so, year after year, the misery grows, and every great city has on its womb a cancer, sapping its vitality, poisoning its life-blood. Every great city is breeding in its slums a race which is reverting through the savage to the brute, a brute more dangerous in that degraded humanity has possibilities of evil in it beyond the reach of the mere wild beast. If not for love's sake, then for fear. If not for justice or for human pity, then for sheer desire of self-preservation. I appeal to the wise and to the wealthy to set their hands to the cure of social evil, ere stolidity gives place to passion and dull patience vanishes before fury, and they learn at last, in some wild hour, how much the wretched dare. Because it was less hotly antagonistic to the radicals than the two other socialist organizations, I joined the Fabian Society, and worked hard with it as a speaker and lecturer. Sidney Webb, G. Bernard Shaw, Hubert and Mrs. Bland, Graham Wallace, these were some of those who gave time, thought, incessant work to the popularizing of socialist thought, the spreading of sound economics, the effort to turn the workers' energy towards social rather than merely political reform. 
We lectured at workmen's clubs wherever we could gain a hearing, till we leavened London radicalism with socialist thought, and by treating the radical as the unevolved socialist rather than as the anti-socialist, we gradually won him over to socialist views. We circulated questions to be put to all candidates for parliamentary or other offices, stirred up interest in local elections, educated men and women into an understanding of the causes of their poverty, won recruits for the army of propagandists from the younger of the educated middle class. That the London working classes today are so largely socialist is greatly due to the years of work done among them by members of the Fabian Society, as well to the splendid, if occasionally too militant, energy of the Social Democratic Federation, and to the devotion of that noble and generous genius, William Morris. During this same year, 1885, a movement was set on foot in England to draw attention to the terrible sufferings of the Russian political prisoners, and it was decided at a meeting held in my house to form a society of the Friends of Russia, which should seek to spread accurate and careful information about the present condition of Russia. At that meeting were present Charles Bradlaugh, Stepniak, and many others, ERPs acting as honorary secretary. It is noteworthy that some of the most prominent Russian exiles, such as Kropotkin, take the view that the Tsar himself is not allowed to know what occurs, and is very largely the victim of the bureaucracy that surrounds him. Another matter that increased as the months went on was the attempt of the police authorities to stop socialist speaking in the open air. Christians, freethinkers, salvationists, agitators of all kinds were for the most part left alone, but there was a regular crusade against the socialists, Liberal and Tory journals alike condemned the way in which, in Dodd Street, in September, the socialists' meetings were attacked. Quiet persistence was shown by the promoters, members of the Social Democratic Federation, and they were well supported by other socialists and by the radical clubs. I volunteered to speak on October 4th, my first Sunday in London, after the summoning and imprisoning of the speakers had commenced. But the attitude of the people was so determined on the preceding Sunday that all interference was withdrawn. Herbert Burroughs stood for the school board for the Tower Hamlets in the November of this year, and I find a paragraph in The Reformer in which I heartily wished him success, especially as the first candidate who had put forward a demand for industrial education. In this, as in so many practical proposals, socialists have led the way. He polled 4,232 votes, despite the furious opposition of the clergy to him as a freethinker, of the publicans to him as a teetotaler, of the maintainers of the present social system to him as a socialist. And his fight did much to make possible my own success in 1888. With this autumn, too, began, in connection with the struggle for the right of meeting, the helping of the workmen to fair trial by providing of bail and legal defense. The first case that I bailed out was that of Lewis Lyons, sent to jail for two months with hard labor by Mr. Saunders of the Thames Police Court. Oh, the weary, sickening waiting in the court for my prisoner, the sordid vice, the revolting details of human depravity to which my unwilling eyes and ears were witnesses. I carried Lyons off in triumph, and the Middlesex magistrates quashed the conviction, the evidence being pronounced by them to be confusing, contradictory, and worthless. Yet but for the chance of one of us stepping forward to offer bail and to provide the means for an appeal, I acted on Mr. Bradlow's suggestion and advice, for he acted as counsellor to me all through the weary struggles that lasted until 1888, putting his great legal knowledge at my disposal, though he often disapproved my action, thinking me quixotic. But for this, Lewis Lyons would have had to suffer his heavy sentence. 
The general election took place this autumn, and Northampton returned Mr. Bradlaugh for the fifth time, thus putting an end to the long struggle, for he took the oath in his seat in the following January, and at once gave notice of an oaths bill, to give to all who claimed it, under all circumstances, the right to affirm. He was returned with the largest vote ever polled for him, 4,315, and he entered Parliament with all the prestige of his great struggle, and went to the front at once, one of the recognized forces in the House. The action of Mr. Speaker Peel promptly put an end to an attempted obstruction. Sir Michael Hicks Beach, Mr. Cecil Rakes, and Sir John Henaway had written to the Speaker asking his interference, but the Speaker declared that he had no authority, no right to stand between a duly elected member and the duty of taking the oath prescribed by statute. Thus ended the constitutional struggle of six years, that left the victor well-nigh bankrupt in health and in purse, and sent him to a comparatively early grave. He lived long enough to justify his election, to prove his value to the House and to his country, but he did not live long enough to render to England all the services which his long training, his wide knowledge, his courage, and his honesty so eminently fitted him to yield. Our corner now served as a valuable aid in socialist propaganda, and its monthly socialist notes became a record of socialist progress in all lands. We were busy during the spring in organizing a conference for the discussion of the present commercial system and the better utilization of national wealth for the benefit of the community. And this was successfully held at South Place Institute on June ninth, 10th, and 11th, the three days being given respectively to the utilization of land, the utilization of capital, and the democratic policy. On the ninth, Mr. Bradlaugh spoke on the utilization of waste lands, arguing that in a thickly populated country no one had the right to keep cultivable land uncultivated, and that where land was so kept there should be compulsory expropriation, the state taking the land and letting it out to cultivating tenants. Among the other speakers were Edward Carpenter, William Morris, Sidney Webb, John Robertson, William Sanders, W. Donisthorpe, Edward Aveling, Charlotte Wilson, Mrs. Fenwick Miller, Hubert Bland, Dr. Pankhurst, and myself. Men and women of many views met to compare methods, and so help on the cause of social regeneration. End of chapter 13, part 1